Greetings, everyone. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm Jason Dressel, and happy holidays. The sprint to the end of the year is on. Thanksgiving being at the end of November has compressed the time we have, and I think everyone is feeling the crunch. To that point, this will be our last podcast of the year. We will be back in January, beginning with a focus on 2020 and what is predicted for the future, and also a look back at the last decade. As we enter the 2020s, we're going to bid farewell to the 2010s with a review of the last decade in business. We'll revisit some of the predictions for the decade and how those played out, and uh, also maybe look at some of the biggest uh, business milestones of the last 10 years. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, with holiday marketing in full swing, we've got a combination of old and new that we're going to talk about, including we are going to delve into some interesting old school holiday content marketing that I'm going to bet that most of you didn't even know was marketing. We're also going to talk with the big chief about some of the big business news from over the last couple of weeks. But first, before talking to Bruce and before we wade into the deep waters of Christmas marketing history, let's first do a rundown on some of the interesting business milestones from December. And let's begin with our mystery company of the day. And this is an awesome uh, trivia question. So uh, maybe this is a good one for your uncle or brother-in-law who spends way too much time talking about stocks during the family get-together over the holidays. You ready? What was the first American billion-dollar company? It was not a company that achieved the billion-dollar threshold through organic growth, I'll tell you that. It was formed through a merger in December 1900 that included some names from American business history that you'll recognize. So no more hints, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Also, in December 1933, prohibition finally comes to an end as Utah becomes the 36th state to ratify the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, repealing the 18th Amendment, a very important milestone in business history. Honestly, doesn't it just blow your mind that for more than a decade, booze was not legal in America? And certainly, when you think back to the Roaring Twenties, Babe Ruth, The Great Gatsby, The image that comes to mind is certainly not a sober, spirits-free one. Of course, there was tons of money to be made, so it's hard to think the prohibition was a great success for anyone other than organized crime, and it makes a strong argument for what happens when government tries to overly regulate an industry that is clearly wanted by the majority of the population and has huge demand, but I'll refrain from jumping on a soapbox. But anyway, December 1933... Prohibition is finally repealed, and in celebration, the Pennsylvania brewer Yingling made a beer called Winner, or maybe it was pronounced Winner, and Yingling shipped a truckload of this Winner beer to the White House as a big thank you to FDR. Yingling, incidentally, is now the nation's oldest brewery, I believe. Its history dates back to 1829, so by the time Prohibition came on the scene, it was nearly a 100-year-old business. I can't imagine being a nearly 100-year-old company and your entire industry is just outlawed virtually overnight. Uh, So during the Prohibition, Yingling established Yingling Dairy and started producing ice cream. Of course, all the companies of the industry had to diversify, and Yingling Dairy actually lasted until 1984 and then was brought back in 2014. So this holiday season, you can top your apple pie with a scoop of Yingling ice cream, which is available in many different flavors, including black and tan. 
But the black and tan is chocolate and caramel, so don't get excited if you were hoping for beer-flavored ice cream. Speaking of beer, the game Trivial Pursuit was also invented in December 1979. Two Canadian newspaper editors came up with the idea while drinking beer and playing Scrabble. They were probably not drinking Yandling. I'm guessing they were maybe drinking Molson or, or Moosehead. Uh, but they decided to make their own board game and launched Trivial Pursuit. Uh, and the game later took off in 1983 when it was licensed to Selchow and Ryder, the same game manufacturer of Scrabble. And the game has made over $2 billion, so that will buy you a lot of Molson. And last but not least, also in December 1979, and also probably involving lots of beer, Bruce Weindrick founded History Factory. So a very happy 40th anniversary and shameless plug for our own modest enterprise and the producer of this podcast. To hear Bruce tell the story, he needed a phone where his wife could reliably reach him, and that was the driving force behind starting the company. Uh, like many company founders, uh, Bruce's passion was to have an office where he could have his own phone and could be reliably reached. Uh, of course, the real story has a little more to it than that. Bruce and his co-founder, Tom West, founded a company called Informative Design Group with the vision of creating more substantive communications products. Bruce, a historian by training who was working at the Smithsonian, came from a family of business people and was naturally interested in companies. He was predisposed to interpret and contextualize history through business and economic filters, and he observed that businesses consistently underutilize their own institutional experiences and accomplishments. In their zeal to always move forward, they often missed opportunities to bring their past along with them. Bruce saw an opportunity for them to preserve their history more effectively and to use it more proactively as an asset for competitive advantage. Tom West was a designer who brought the graphic dimension to the partnership, and the company later added archival services in the early 1980s and began building archival management systems for companies. The arrival and rapid adoption of the personal computer provided a tool that enabled new cataloging capabilities. And as not only a historian, but also a music freak who had owned record stores in his early 20s, Bruce understood the value of organizing records, which translated to perfectly grasping the concept of records management in the literal sense. These insights helped stand up the archives dimension of the business that complemented and differentiated the company's offerings for creative services. Informative Design Group then rebranded as History Factory in 1989. Uh, the name was inspired by the move to a new location in Washington, D.C., and punctuated the small company's niche on the marketing communications landscape, which was articulated through the philosophy to start with the future and work back. Twenty years later, History Factory has continued to stay true to this mindset in many ways and is fortunate to call many of the world's most admired companies and brands clients, so happy 40th anniversary, History Factory. I'm so proud of all we've accomplished and all we have ahead of us. Speaking of History Factory and Bruce, let's listen in now on my conversation with Bruce about some of his thoughts on the closing out of 2019. Happy holidays, Bruce. How are you? Jason, I'm fine. It's that time of year. I think I'm, I know that the season is just starting, but uh, first of all, the History Factory's 40th celebration Took a little bit out of the old guy. And uh, now, uh, you know, we got to go through the holiday season with all the events and all the parties and all the stuff. So maybe I'm getting to be a little bit of a bah humbug type, but I'm tired. 
Yeah, well, happy 40th anniversary, and you earned it. So uh, I think you're probably just a little bit tired. We certainly uh, had a a (laughs) good time the other night. Well, thank Uh, you. Uh, Let's do it again on the 50th, huh? Yeah, if not not well before. so it's uh it's the end of the year obviously and uh we're going to talk in our in our next podcast about kind of a reflection on on the 2010 decade and and some of the biggest uh uh moments of the decade um but as we as we close out 2019 and you think about the last year um uh, especially in the context of the holidays and as we now you know close out the year and, and, and corporations are, are focused on, uh, you know, closing out the good year on, on a positive note. What are any thoughts you have on some of the highlights of, of 2019 in terms of business history? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Jason. When, when, as you know, whenever we do the history of an organization, uh, one of the many milestones that will always pop out is the organization's response to disasters and catastrophes. And, you know, these go all the way back. I mean, you've got world wars, you've got uh, hurricanes, you've got uh, earthquakes. We've had them all in our histories. You had 9-11. And, you know, these are important kind of mile markers. Um, And so, you know, at this time of the year when we talk about the spirit of giving and as we look back over the year, things that stand out, there's a couple. Um, And the one that would affect us, you know, here in the U.S. more perhaps because it happened in our hemisphere would have been Hurricane Dorian. This 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 was an amazing. You know, the the Bahamas, the Grand Bahamas, and the Abaco Islands were absolutely devastated. And I think the first thing that struck me was really how coordinated um, disaster relief has gotten over the years. Um, you know, it used to be companies did good things, but you know the the American Red Cross, and particularly the use of, of, of uh, digital technology, um, has, has really mobilized uh, kind of American and, and global companies, but particularly American companies. I mean, you look at Coca-Cola. Um, they were right there during the uh, Dorian, uh, the wake of Dorian, with water. Uh, their Dastani brand uh, was there. You look at Verizon. You know, a great company was there um, making available the, 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 the 900 numbers, the 9099 numbers, uh, the food numbers, 80100, uh, making sure that the infrastructure was there, even going one step further and making sure that customers both in the U.S. and the Bahamas had unlimited calling, texting, data, back and forth so that they could communicate and identify um, Maybe a smaller thing, but but an important thing. Kohler, Kohler has a relief trailer that they made available, not so much for the for the to victims of the catastrophe, but for the volunteers who have to get showered and cleaned and, and continue to move through. Um, Home Depot and Lowe's making available uh, supplies um, to 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 these areas. It is so well coordinated now through the Red Cross, uh, through these convoys of hope, um, that it, it's just very a very different kind of response. But I can tell you, when we look back at a disaster like that, what it does for the organizations, the people who work inside those companies, uh, let alone, obviously, the, the beneficiaries, um, these are going to be important 
really important um, milestones that they'll remember more so than it used to be the insurance companies. This is companies who, who have products and services that they can provide on the ground. Um, and by the way, they're coming faster and more furious uh, given the climate change. Um, you know, these are groups that have just come out of Puerto Rico and then they're up again now in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Bahamas. It's truly remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you make because you can see where, dare I say, the influence of corporate social responsibility and companies focusing on their purpose is actually starting to play it out, play out in, this, in these areas because, uh, as you mentioned, organizations are now starting to respond, it seems, in a more direct way that's really aligned with what their sort of core competencies are and, and, and what they've concluded are their sort of altruistic sort of offering to society. Um, and you're right, you know, it, it enables, it seems, organizations to have a, a better kind of through line on what exactly they're going to do and what kinds of disasters they may be responding to versus others where perhaps they don't. Yeah, because you're right. And, and, it's not just the pro- it's not just the property and casualty companies that are that are responding to this, and and obviously with climate change as well as just you know infrastructure continuing to get old, um, you know like what happened you know with 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 with, with, with Notre Dame, uh, you know it 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 um, it really does kind of provide sort of a playbook on how companies can respond in a meaningful way. Well, you know, it's a very interesting point you make about that direct connection to what they do and what their purpose is. And again, bringing up Notre Dame, Notre Dame is a very interesting point. There was a lot of criticism there uh, for, again, and again, this was, you know, you can't criticize someone for giving, but there were people who just gave, who, frankly, people questioned the, the, the direct connection. There were two types of kind of givings. The, the ones that got criticized were some of the uh, families, of the wealthiest families of France, uh, the Pinots, uh, so the You know, the, the disaster happens, and the next day after the fire, the Pinots give uh, $100 million. And these are mainly the, 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 the branded conglomerate families. So the Pinots give $100 million. Well, the Arnos, the next day, they give $200 million. All right. Then the Bencourt family, the L'Oreal Cosmetics family, they give $200 million. Now, Again, the, the problem you get here are, you know, this is against the backdrop of, of the yellow vest, and there are a lot of people in France who are saying, now, wait a minute, you know, it's great that you're doing that, but where were you uh, when we needed you before? Having said that, you get companies that donate directly to the purpose. So, for instance, Air France KLM offers uh, free flights to experts who, are, who have to get there to help them rebuild direct connection. You get uh, 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 someone like uh, 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 the steelmaker Mattel, um, they immediately say, we'll offer up steel. Saint-Gobain, the, 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 the beloved uh, French glass company, immediately says, we'll provide, uh, we, we can provide um, uh, glass expertise to help with the glass. It's interesting seeing the criticism of the families who gave tremendous amounts of money, but um, not directly connected to Notre Dame necessarily. Um, and so you're right. I think 
as we move into you know into this era of purpose and as we move into well what should we be doing what should we be doing otherwise um people are going to hold either their question uh, their their companies or or even you know the contributors they're going to hold them up against the 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 the, the kind of the, the you know what are you doing um all the time and if it is within the the, the kind of the boundaries of their normal giving, there's less criticism about them being perhaps, uh, you know, not being sincere in their gifts. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we've seen it with our own clients. You know, it seems, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of the large organizations, their their philanthropy strategy was not clearly as refined and as focused as it is now you know it might be that you know the 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 chairman or or executives in specific areas had you know their kind of pet projects and causes and you know um we've had our our skepticism sometimes of of the the purpose movement um but it does seem it is providing uh, a stronger sense of of focus on uh, on enabling these uh these enterprises that have obviously incredible resources to be able to really um uh be more disciplined and focused on how they 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 harness those resources yeah and as you point out it's really moving from the individual to the to the enterprise and when it moves to the enterprise what can the enterprise do to harness the power of its people its products its services as opposed to any one any one individual and and by the way you know if you stay you see in these cases if you stay closely aligned um, you know I hate to say it you, you, you you'll probably be better served in the in the kind of the hot light of, of social media, you'll be better served. You're always going to get flack for what you do, but if you stay close to what you know and what you believe in, it's hard to criticize. It's very, remember, it was easy to criticize a, a, a branded goods uh, a magnate for who all of a sudden woke up one day and gave, you know, $200 million uh, to, to, to a cathedral. You, you know, what's that about? What were you doing? What were you doing the rest of the year? Obviously, they were giving in other places, but that's the danger. But to, to a company that's already, you know, involved in those areas that will be of great help to rebuilding Notre Dame, the, 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 there's, a, there's a reason for them being there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what uh, what 2020 has in store because uh, if there's one thing uh, if there's one thing we we've learned, it will. Um, uh, unquestionably, there will be uh, there will be more. Uh, unfortunately, there will be uh, more more disasters uh, that 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 happen. So uh, it'll be interesting to continue to track well, how how companies and brands respond to these challenges around the world. Well, what what we know more than anything, Jason, is that what we don't know is that there's going to be a whole new chapter because it sure would make it easiest for us if we knew <laughs> what was going to happen. Uh, it's going to be a whole new chapter. If you look back at this year, uh, you know, even from here in Washington, you know, uh, we began with a government shutdown. Uh, we've been through a, we've been through a lot of stuff this year, and so yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what comes next. I have to say though, this particular topic we're talking about, which is purpose, it is truly remarkable to see how it is, per, you know, permeated our companies, our clients, 
uh, you know, the, 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 even toward the end of the year, you know, the, the uh, J.P. Morgan Chase having some issues with, with uh, their, their minority hiring and their CEO immediately stepping out and saying, we got to do better. This is all part of, of the movement away from, you know, our vision, our mission is shareholder value to our mission is to, to serve. And uh, I think it is the way it is realigning uh, the, and, and, and accelerating uh, the decision-making. When you say you're a purpose-driven company, uh, this reflects a lot on, on your employee behavior, on your corporate behavior. And, I, and if you look at the landscape, the speed at which changes are being made because they've made a commitment and, and stood out and said, we are going to be different, I think it's probably one of the biggest stories of, 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 of 2019. Yeah. And again, not to sound like a skeptic, but part of me, it'll be interesting to see how companies stay true to this, uh, because obviously it's been such a strong economy over these last several years. And, you know, as we in the future, whenever whenever it happens, and hopefully it's not soon, but whenever we, we hit the next recession, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, companies continue to balance these expectations uh, when they have more pressure from shareholders uh, to, to meet the demands of uh, to meet the demands of uh, of you know of their performance. Uh, so I uh, I for one am interested to see how that's going to play out uh, longer term. What do they always say? You, you, you don't know you don't know who's naked until in, in the water until the until the beach until the tide goes out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So well, hey, that's having said that, that's a wonderful end of the year thought, isn't it? Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, as I said, we'll uh, we'll, we'll regroup in uh, in 2020. We'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, major stories of the last 10 years. We will uh, stay out of the prediction business, but uh, it will be interesting to look at some of the trends that are expected for for 2020 and beyond, so that we can uh, we can talk about them at the end of next year and poke fun of them. So <laughs> looking forward. To- well, looking forward. First of all, th- thank you for thank you for for hosting this podcast, and thank you to all the people um, who who've taken the time and invested the time to listen. Uh, I think you're doing a great. I think you're doing a great job. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. Well, happy holidays, and uh, we will uh, we'll uh, we'll be back on in a couple weeks. See you then. All right. Okay, let's move on to unpack some of the interesting stories behind the marketing of the holidays. This month is the 80th anniversary of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Who knew? Uh, Rudolph is apparently the same age as Batman. And uh, I loved Rudolph the Reindeer as a kid. Still do, actually. And I was really surprised to learn about Rudolph's origin story. Our story begins in Chicago in 1939, where the retailer Montgomery Ward is planning early for the 1939 Christmas season. The marketing department traditionally purchased and distributed coloring books as a holiday promotion for kids, but came up with the idea of creating its own Christmas-themed book to cut costs. The project was assigned to a copywriter named Robert May. Uh, Robert May had a degree from Dartmouth and had aspired to be a novelist, but paid the bills by writing catalog copy for Montgomery Ward. And uh, the bills were piling up for the May family. It turns out that Robert's wife was sick with cancer, and she died during that summer of 1939 while Robert was working on the Rudolph story. 
His boss proposed reassigning the project to another employee, but Robert May refused, and he later wrote, I needed Rudolph now more than ever. So May finished the story in August. The story was inspired by his daughter, who loved visiting the zoo, and from his own childhood. He told Guideposts magazine in 1975, quote, Rudolph and I were something alike. As a child, I'd always been the smallest in the class, frail, poorly coordinated. I was never asked to join the school teams. May's story turned his protagonist's deformity into a strength, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer became the hero who saved Christmas. In addition to his own childhood and his daughter, May's story was inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale The Ugly Duckling and Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas, which also featured 89 rhyming couplets. Montgomery Ward's marketing for the book hyped the story as, quote, the rollicking new Christmas verse that's sweeping the country. Children snapped up nearly 2.4 million copies of the paper-bound book in 1939. Uh, the book was then put on hold uh, during war World War II, but then returned in 1946 when Montgomery Ward distributed 3.6 million copies. But Montgomery Ward may not have fully understood what it had on its hands because the company gave Robert May the rights. May then went to his brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, who was a songwriter, and the two set the Rudolph story to music in 1949. After Bing Crosby reportedly turned down the chance, Gene Autry recorded the song, which sold 2 million copies in the first year and remains one of the best-selling holiday songs of all time. So, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer began as a clever piece of content marketing for a retailer. And indirectly, Rudolph also spawned Frosty the Snowman. Frosty the Snowman debuted in 1950 as a song written by songwriters Steve Nelson and Jack Rollins, who were likely trying to get their own holiday hit based on the success of Rudolph the year before. Nelson and Rollins, incidentally, were also the songwriters for Peter Cottontail. Coincidentally or not so coincidentally, Frosty the Snowman was also first sung by Gene Autry. And the one degree of separation between Frosty and Rudolph continued. In the 1960s, Rankin Bass Productions produced the 1964 Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie, and then five years later produced the classic Frosty the Snowman cartoon. So here we are 50 years later, and Frosty the Snowman aired on CBS over Thanksgiving, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer will air on CBS on December 14th. And that brings me to a point about the power of the holiday season. I know it's corny, and I know it's easy to be cynical about the commercialism of Christmas, but that's one of the things that I really love about the holiday season is that it creates a sense of nostalgia and tradition really like no other time. My kids love all these shows from the 1960s, like Charlie Brown and The Grinch and Frosty and Rudolph. And these shows are so prehistoric in their worldview when it comes to the kind of content that engages them for the rest of the year. But for some reason, all of the holiday programming gets a big pass on the production values. I mean, to be as charitable as possible, there's something relatable and maybe even authentic in each of these characters that the audiences could relate to. But I would argue that this is also the magic of the holiday season. It creates the environment for these nostalgic icons to live on. Even if you want to be a cynic because Rudolph was created by a retailer and Frosty the Snowman was written by a couple of dudes trying to crank out another holiday hit for Gene Autry, what difference does it make? Gene Autry died in 1998 and Montgomery Ward died in 2000, but Rudolph and Frosty live on. Speaking of retailers and holiday nostalgia, here's another thing that caught my eye this holiday season. A few weeks ago, we received a catalog in the mail from Amazon, 
And it immediately stuck out to me because A, it was a paper catalog from Amazon, and B, it was clearly inspired by the iconic Sears Wish Book, which, of course, was like the Christmas list Bible for probably every American kid who is now over the age of 45. Amazon has raised its game in the toy industry since Toys R Us went under, and the catalog, a staples of 19th century commerce, is the latest example of this. I wasn't the only person who noticed. Uh, the catalog generated a fair amount of media, and what struck me about the coverage is that it was very kind and complimentary. It was pretty soft on a retailer that all of us seem to have this kind of can't-live-with-and-can't-live-without relationship. And that just reinforces that the holidays makes us all saps. For a few weeks of the year, we get all emotional for the Budweiser Clydesdales, the Coca-Cola Polar Bears, the Hess Trucks, the Hershey Kiss Holiday Bells, and when is Folgers bringing Peter back home? Speaking of Christmas advertisements and origin stories, Sainsbury's, the iconic UK grocer, has been celebrating its 150th anniversary this year and has had a few interesting heritage ads, including its latest for the holidays. Sainsbury's, of course, has one of the most iconic holiday ads of all time, which was back in 2014 when they did an ad commemorating the Christmas Day truce of 1914 between German and British soldiers. In this new ad, Sainsbury's creates an origin story for St. Nicholas against the backdrop of 1860s London and their original store. It's a fun bit that emphasizes charity and kindness and also reminds us that so much of our modern interpretation of Christmas comes from Victorian-era England and the imagination of Charles Dickens, who published A Christmas Carol back in 1843. But A Christmas Carol didn't just help broaden the popular celebration of Christmas and how we celebrate it, it also made a really strong social statement. Like Oliver Twist and later Great Expectations and David Copperfield, A Christmas Carol juxtaposes the extreme wealth against the extreme poverty of 19th century England. And in A Christmas Carol specifically, Dickens makes a radical argument that employers have a responsibility for the well-being of their workers. So that's a good segue from Victorian-era England back to Victorian-era America to revisit our mystery company, the first billion-dollar U.S. company. Huh? See? See how I did that, that little segue? Uh, on December 12th, 1900, U.S. Steel was formed. The company merged Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company with Federal Steel Company, a conglomerate of smaller companies that J.P. Morgan had helped consolidate. Now, Carnegie had been reluctant to deal with Morgan, but ultimately J.P. Morgan, with the help of many others, most notably Charles Schwab, not to be confused, of course, with Better Call Chuck Charles Schwab, uh, but the original uh, early 20th century steel robber baron Charles Schwab, got the deal done and Carnegie was bought out for $492 million and U.S. Steel was formed. Charles Schwab, incidentally, became the CEO of the newly formed company, and later on in life, he probably would have benefited from some advice from Chuck Schwab because he would go on to squander his own fortune as he lived a lifestyle and managed his millions in a way that would make MC Hammer blush. But anyway, back to Victorian England and Christmas. My family just watched the film The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's a great movie about Dickens and the Christmas Carol origin story. Uh, a movie kind of in the same vein as Johnny Depp's uh, Finding Neverland story about Peter Pan. And uh, so over the holidays, if you have some time, that might be a fun movie to check out. So that's our podcast. Happy holidays to you and yours. 
Uh, hope everyone has a wonderful holiday. Wishing everyone a happy and healthy new year. Thanks to all my History Factory friends, colleagues, our clients and partners for a wonderful 2019. Be well and stay tuned for more History Factory plugged in in 2020.